Hello. Hello. My name is Evan Friedman, and I am one of the hosts of the Noid Knowledge podcast, where we talk about science as it relates to cannabis and the cannabis industry. I am the vice president of Scientific Cell Company, a New York-based uh, ancillary scientific products provider for the cannabis industry. And I am joined today by Bill Nichols, who will introduce himself now. Hi, I'm Bill Nichols. I'm the technical director at Biotrax Testing Labs in Chictawaga, New York, right outside of Buffalo. Um, and we are one of the 16 licensed labs in New York State to do uh, various cannabis testing. But we also focus on pharmaceuticals and food as well within our laboratory when it comes to microbiology. And Bill, your background is in microbiology? My background is quite diverse. I'm a, a chemist and biologist, but um, I have focused on, a lot on food and cannabis science with microbiology, but also some analytical techniques as well. Wonderful. So uh, today we're, we're here to discuss... Uh, an article that came out uh, on September 20th of this year regarding the total yeast and mold counts and safety testing on New York cannabis. The article was titled, New York's Testing Failures Expose Legal Weed Consumers to Unsafe Cannabis, a Serious Health Threat. Um, and... While the article is well written, uh, it it draws some conclusions that might need some better explanation and uh, some reinterpretation. I'd say. Um, you have anything to add to that, Bill? Yeah, I mean, I I would agree with that. the The problem with the article is is that. Um, that I saw is kind of the interpretation of looking at the medical program to the adult program and cross comparing the two, um, as well as not really giving references to what some of these numbers mean and why um, they mean that way. So hopefully we, maybe we can shed some light on that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, to, to start the, the article states top selling weed strains available at licensed dispensaries from western new york to manhattan contain microbial levels 10 to 250 times higher than what's allowed under the state's rules for medical cannabis uh i uh i think you you've already touched on uh the the first point there which is these are adult use products not medical products and so the regulatory standards are not the same, and I don't think they should be. Right. So they certainly aren't the same. And then with that in mind, too, um, you know, you can't necessarily cross compare um, to those. So specifically, we're talking about yeast and mold and aerobic bacteria counts in uh, New York State. And just to give a little background there, when it comes to aerobic uh, counts and yeast and mold counts, there is no uh, limit um, that is what's called an action limit in New York State. So whether or not a product can um, hit 
shelves or not. So the article highlights that. Um, this is specifically on unextra uh, unextracted products. So we're talking about things like pre-rolls or whole flour products. Um, this, this isn't the case with adult use products when it comes to your, I, I don't know what you want to call them. A lot of people have different names. We call them value added products. Um, things like gummies, beverages, those sorts of things, those do have a limit, but just to give a little, um, background on this, um, when it comes to unextracted products, um, for aerobic bacteria count, the, um, the a maximum amount you can have is a hundred thousand uh, CFU or colony forming units per mil or per gram of product, depending on what type of product. And yeast and mold is 10,000 um, CFUs per gram or per mil um, with it. So this is, you know, those are the baselines in which they're, they're trying to build that argument from. So, um, and these, these colony forming units are, are just how we in the lab space uh, identify uh, essentially the amount of active uh, microbes. Yes. Yeah. So you're talking about microbes that are growing. So a colony forming unit, um, as you grow it out on a plate, started out as one microbe and grew into what's called a colony or a group of microbes together. Um, the measurements made by how many of those starting organisms or colony forming units uh, exist there. So again, a plate can have quite a few, it can have very few, um, and there's a lot of different methods to go and calculate any of these. But also I do want to point out that the article never states, and this is important on the laboratory side, what um, method was used for them to calculate this. Um, with it. So that's also an important piece. Um, they also didn't mention who did the work. Yeah. I think uh, typically what we uh, like to do in science is to state exactly how measurements were prepared and performed and by whom so that somebody can independently go back and uh, replicate those results to confirm their accuracy. Exactly. Um, and, I, and for that sake, I know that our lab didn't do these measurements um, with it. And, you know, hopefully also an in-state lab um, did these as well, uh, because a lot of the individuals who were referenced in the article for quotes throughout are not individuals who are in New York State. That is true. Um, one of the strongest quotes in the article reads, the majority of these products should not have been allowed to be sold to consumers and may pose a serious health threat. And that was made by uh, someone from a New Jersey testing lab. Um, now, that is a very strongly worded statement. And even if the results presented are completely accurate. Um, I'm not sure that that applies directly. Um, the Once again, we're comparing um, adult use product testing to the medical program's limits. 
And we are also assuming that the presence of microbes means that there are harmful contaminants uh, there, uh, which just because there are yeast and mold present does not mean that those represent a danger to, to the consumer. And I think at this point, it's important to differentiate the, between quality and safety. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think also to preface this, you know, look, looking at this too, is neither of us are, unless you hold a, a secret degree that I don't know about, neither of us are medical professionals, right? But also Correct. looking at this, we, we have to look at this objectively too. And the idea between safety and quality is a huge point. Um, I mentioned that we're a food laboratory um, as well. Yeast and mold numbers, aerobic numbers, these are used as quality indicators, not safety indicators within the food realm. So what's so different about this um, for it, right? You know, other things on the panels are a safety feature. We have to do salmonella testing on cannabis. We have to do um, Steck E. coli or Shingatoxin um, creating E. coli and Aspergillus testing all on cannabis. Those are species specific because there is thought to be, without going down the rabbit hole there, there's a thought to be a risk of those products. So that's a safety concern. Those are there for safety purposes, but these are really quality indicators. Um, and with the way farming has to take place in New York State, um, it's not surprising to see elevated numbers in adult use products, especially when a lot of these products were grown outdoors. Yeah, I, I think that that is a, a very fair and and uh, clear uh, assessment. Um, we we live in a world that is alive, that has a microbiome throughout. And uh, if we are growing plants outside, they're going to have an active microbiome. And that does not mean that they are dangerous. Uh, would, uh, I, there are plenty of medical patients growing their own cannabis in their own backyards without any of this uh, testing. Uh, and I, I'm not hearing too many concerns or, or risks from that as well. Sure. I mean, you certainly have that concern. I mean, if you do have uh, in a, you know, compromised immune system stuff and you're choosing to use the medical program, you also might not be smoking items too. You might be ingesting your cannabis and other, other methods, whether it be a tincture or whatever it might be with it as well. But, um, you know, in this case, we're talking about adult use versus medical. And I think that is a big indicator is whenever you buy a product, you have to, um, weigh the risk, right? If you are a cancer patient, um, you would have to pick and choose though, to be fair, if you're having, um, any type of, uh, you know, chemo or radiation therapies with this, um, your doctor goes through a whole list of certain foods and things to stay away from too. But yet if you go for your yearly checkup, that same doctor is not going to go through those foods with you, right? You know, it, yeah. 
you're going to eat a raw produce item, for instance, you're going to consume yeast and mold. You're going to consume aerobic bacteria. No matter how much you rinse off your apple on the outside and whatnot, there's still going to be microbes present. Um, and then also the thing I, you know, as I spent a lot of time with individuals in the community is, and you talked about the environment having microbes, we also have microbes as, as, as well. And, you know, the processing of this cannabis, even if the, the best individuals are taking the most, um, you know, caution in dealing with their cannabis, they still have the chance of contaminating those items to an extent as well. Um, because we have large quantities of aerobic bacteria, you know, some of these counts when they're talking about 200, 300,000 CFUs per mil in these, I could swab your hands and your arms and get similar counts to that. That doesn't mean the microbes on you are necessarily harmful, right? In a lot of cases, actually, those microbes are uh, beneficial microbes and actually ward off some of the, you know, microbes we encounter in the environment around us on a regular basis. Uh, absolutely. I, one of the concepts that I always fall back on is if you have a healthy microbiome, it is going to protect you from the dangerous microbes by outcompeting them for the resources there, uh, since they're already established. Mm -hmm. So they, they did in the article specifically reference a, a death from aspergillus. Um, and I think that that can be very, um, very influential in, in somebody's interpretation. Uh, I'd, I'd love to dive into those details just a little bit more. Um, do, do you know what I'm referring to? Yeah. And I, and I've gone through the article. I think one of the big pieces of that article, um, cause it's brought up quite a bit. Um, and some of you may have written or read a white paper that, um, I was one of the authors on, um, dealing with aspergillus, but with that in mind, you have to remember that that individual was severely immune compromised. We know that microbes as a whole can cause issues with immune compromised individuals more so than not. Um, and that specific person was no, knowingly immune compromised. It wasn't like they were randomly immune compromised and didn't have knowledge of that. I mean, they were a transplant patient. So if you're a transplant patient, uh, specifically bone marrow, to have that procedure, um, you are going to be severely immune compromised. And I, I, more so than, than most. Again, I'm not a medical professional, but at least on the bone marrow transplant side, I do have a lot more background than other things because my wife is a cancer researcher and specifically dealing with bone marrow, leukemia, and uh, lymphoma. So. Yeah. So I, I think context is, is critical in, in almost everything, but in particular here, uh, it, it, it helps to understand that uh, the dangers of, of aspergillus uh, are, are pretty specific to immunocompromised people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think also here too is, um, you know, that's not necessarily looked at here is, is, and I, I see this a lot in the community is, is everyone just thinks 
microbes bad. And microbes aren't necessarily bad for some of the reasons we've already covered and many more reasons we could cover. But they never mentioned, though, that and where my concern would be this would be at is larger amounts of microbes. Is there going to be a quality issue to that product instead? Now, again, we're not the state. We're not the compliance program of the state or regulators. Right. Um, but, you know. Looking at these numbers, or do we have a quality issue to that we need to think about or worry about? And then likewise, this too, we do have ways of bringing those numbers down, but also that brings on quality issues within the product as well, right? And of course, I'm talking about remediation there. Yeah, so um, I understand there's there's a few different remediation technologies out there. Uh, some states have action limits on on uh, yeasts and molds that essentially uh, require remediation to occur. Um, but everything I've seen is that these technologies definitely have an impact on the chemical profile of of the material um, as well as potentially uh, it's uh, the duration of its quality. So, and these these remediation methods are X-ray irradiation or gamma radiation or ozone exposure, all of which uh, adds energy into the material that uh, that prompts the chemistry to transform. Yeah, ozone's a little bit different than using energy too, but. Um, and you also have chlorine dioxide as a method that some people are using in-house um, with that, or um, they might be using it to also clean space that they're working within as well. Um, so there's a lot there, a lot of options for remediation, but I think everyone who works in cannabis, unless you specifically a remediation company, um, you know, might state that the quality of that product will change in some way. For instance, one of the, you know, the irradiations things that I hear about often about people complaining about anyways, is that the flower becomes um, more brittle, harder to handle. Um, certainly uh, some problems with that. Um, I've also heard that, you know, utilizing that flower um, or inhaling it can be harsher after remediation. I personally don't smoke. I, I have other modes that I that I use cannabis in my life, but um, you know that the, that is some complaint or issues with it. Among some people, also having ethical issues with re remediation techniques, and maybe not willing to buy products that are remediated. Yeah, uh, I think yeah, just to add one last point onto this topic of remediation. There is the topic of sustainability, mm -hmm. uh, both in terms of environmental sustainability as well as business sustainability. Um, and so from a business perspective, remediation uh, adds time between harvest and point of sale. It adds expense. It adds uh, carbon footprint for certain. 
Um, and then uh, from, uh, or I guess the carbon footprint bit is is the environmental sustainability as well. Um, but the the way uh, the cannabis laws are written here in New York, uh, sustainability is a major part of it, which is part of the reason why much of the cannabis here in New York is grown outdoors, because that is a far more sustainable and eco-friendly methodology for producing cannabis. Yep. And even the ones that are grown indoors within the adult use realm, not the medical realm, also has light restrictions if they choose to go that route. That is true. Um, and I and just to give you an idea of the business side of it, you know, right now, remediation techniques in New York State are ranging between $100 to $150 per pound. So you can see where that adds up quite quickly besides the time portion of it, but the dollar amount and... A lot of these farmers can get anywhere from two to four hundred, uh, two to four or five hundred pounds of cannabis within um, their larger yield. So, you know that that's quite expensive, quite quick, right? You're talking twenty thousand yep. dollars plus in remediation, possibly. And I imagine that um, what to. Make the decision to remediate, you probably want to have the testing panel performed beforehand, and then you've made the decision to remediate, and you probably need the testing panel performed again afterwards. Yeah. And so you have doubled your testing cost on top of your remediating cost. Kind of. Um, you Certainly on the microbe side, luckily New York State does allow you to retest, so let's say you test your full panel, you go and find out that you have elevated yeast and mold numbers, even though there's not a minimum or elevated aerobic numbers, but you've made the personal business decision that you don't want to utilize that test or those materials, you can go back and remediate. And that in New York State, you don't have to, to retest the whole lot. You can just have it remediated once and you can have a um, COA or certificate of analysis reissued once. So luckily you can get away the cost of everything. The most common where that happens is, is, oh, I passed everything except for aspergillus. So now I'm going to go back, remediate, test for aspergillus again and go from there. Um, the downside though is, is of July 1st, it doesn't add just a cost to testing. It also means you have to have it resampled for it. Uh -huh. You can't bring those retests in. You have to have an official sampler retest that material for you. So that could be an extra you know, 150 to $300 out of your pocket as well beyond the testing costs. Yeah. And of course there's the, the sampler has transport costs and carbon footprint as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so all of this, I think, uh, also, uh, we we haven't really touched on the fact that the health and safety concerns that have been brought up are not necessarily well defined. Um, okay. Do 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 we understand? Uh, you know, as scientists in the in the literature, uh, what the safety limits actually are. 
Well, I don't think we do though, right? Otherwise, we would see industry standards across the board versus throughout different states and not just yep. our own if it was fully understood. And you see those limits all over the place. Some places don't even test for yeast and mold and aerobic bacteria. And I think for me, that's actually one of the sticking points here is either if we're going to keep testing for yeast and mold and aerobic bacteria, either do put an action limit on it, which I could give my opinion whether I believe that should even be the case, or don't have us test for it. But right now you have COAs that have numbers on it. And then I get calls on a weekly basis of people asking me, well, are these numbers okay? I don't understand because we always get that microbes are bad kind of situation. So they might see something where it's aerobic bacteria and there's only 2000 CFUs per gram of, of product. Well, that's medical standards. That's great numbers. But then when somebody sees it on there, because there's no action limit listed, they don't know that they just see, Oh my gosh, there's 2000 bacteria per gram. Yeah. Right. And that's not a great way to, um, look at it and it's a not a great thing for the community either um, with it. I've even heard situations where because the state hasn't put limits on it that some um, dispensaries are looking at having their own limits, right? There's no there's no rules saying these rules, these action limits are minimums. There's no rules saying that a dispensary can't turn down something if it's under a certain number or whatnot, right? That's within their business rights to turn away products. Um, Absolutely. standards. Absolutely. And of course, that that becomes even more difficult considering that there's only 25 licensed dispensaries in, in the state of New York currently. Yeah, as, as of this recording. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, I would like to see it go either way. Um, I understand why the numbers were removed, though, last October, because we'd be creating a situation that Aspergillus is creating now, where a lot of these farmers that are working outdoors would inherently fail without some sort of remediation just because of the way that they had to grow their cannabis. Yeah. Uh, I think, and since we do not understand the health and safety implications to, to use that as justification for limitation, uh, seems specious at best. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that also goes to who is in charge of that consumer's health, right? They're the consumer's yeah. health. Is it the individuals producing it? Is it the state watching out over it? Is it really the responsibility of the consumer to look at these results and make an informed decision for themselves? Of course, that comes up with its own issues. Like how do we educate people to make those decisions? If I'm getting phone calls that 2000 CFUs of aerobic bacteria, they're freaking out or they they feel like it's dangerous or something where that's even meeting medical standards. Like there's something saying that education needs to be a big part of this and getting people to understand what these numbers actually mean and, and where you can use those numbers that are posted on these products um, for yourself and make your own decisions. Yeah. So I, I like this point that you've come to, um, who, who actually is in charge of the health of the consumers. So the article has a passage that reads, despite having a team of scientists and licensed medical professionals on staff, the OCM also made licensed growers and processors responsible for deciding whether their products pose a public health risk. 
quote, it is the responsibility of the licensee to consider any risks to the health of consumers, says the OCM's testing guidance for growers and processors. That that seems um, difficult. Um, is is that even legal to to ask the growers and processors to be responsible for making these decisions? Um, are we, we've already said it? You and I are not licensed medical professionals. Uh, I highly doubt that any of the licensed growers and processors are qualified medical prof- uh, professionals to make the decisions on public health risk. Um, I This speaks to, at minimum, education, but also who, who should be responsible for assessing public health uh, risk? And is, is anybody really in position to make that assessment currently with the limited amount of knowledge and research available on the material and in the community? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a tough one, right? Because you look at various aspects to it and, you know, I'm no lawyer as I'm no medical professional either, but you know, you've got to look at these things and say, well, what other related industries and things can we look at to look at or justify this? Um, and of course, we can look at tobacco as part of this. We could look at food as part of this. And, you know, the blame has gone both ways. It's gone to regulators at times, but it also does in some cases fall to um, the processor or the producer of whatever the product is, whether it be a processor or cultivator. I do want to point out that the um, testing guidance for this um, and with this article, it it is changing. Um, We know this on the lab side and there will be more information out um, soon with it. So, um, you know, as of this recording, this is when this is what the quote was given in the um, the article um, that was written, but yet, you know, that document might not be the same if you go to look for it yourself come um, the the time in which this uh, podcast is published. Um, I do want to put that out there. And again, that's just because we know we know ahead of time um, that that might be the case. But I, I agree, though, it's is who knows who's responsible for this. Um, we know in food that it can be the responsibility of the processor or the grower if negligence is shown as part of it. So when you say negligence is shown, that is perhaps uh, receiving an email indicating that these counts are higher than, than what is commonly accepted and that that licensee says, well, there's no limit, so let's put it out anyway, or? Yeah, that would certainly show negligence um, in that regard. I do want to point out something I said earlier, though, that yeast and mold and aerobic bacteria numbers are not used usually for safety concerns or used for quality concerns by companies. Um, But let's say, for instance, um, you know, 
somebody's product gives somebody listeriosis, right? And they've become ill, they've gone to the hospital or whatnot, but yet, you know, they haven't done any listeria testing in their facility. Well, at that point, it would become more of that facility's uh, responsibility because they didn't test for those things, those risks Mm -hmm. that that could come up, even though listeria is well known in a lot of um, food processing plants to exist. And if it's in the plant, it's got a chance of getting into the product, but not knowing that, not doing any types of um, remediation to help that means that you are now negligible in that aspect. Or let's say you have gotten a positive listeria result and you didn't do anything about it. You had no corrective action for it. Um, then you would be responsible for that. You know, it, but again, who's responsible in this case? And, and, you know, I'd love to hear a lawyer chime in sometime as to how that might work on the legal side of things. Surely, surely. Uh, and I think we we always have to think back to mode of consumption again as well, right? So the the I think the the risks of some of these uh, pathogen based infections uh, are based in consumption methodologies that do not. Uh, involve heat, do not transform the product. And in those cases, there are action limits associated with the, these microbial testing. Correct. Um, there are for products. Yes. So somebody's making a beverage, gummy concentrate, whatever it might be, chocolate bar. Um, there are limits to those. So just to give you an idea of those limits on the adult use and medical side, because they're the same for these products. Um, you're talking about 10,000 CFUs per gram for um, aerobic bacteria counts and for yeast and molds, 1,000 CFUs per gram or mill, milliliter of product um, is allowed um, with it. So, you know, you, you, you do see that. Um, I personally haven't seen that those products be a huge concern. My guess is if you see these numbers come up in those products, you're probably having issues um, because of manufacturing practices, not the actual cannabis itself. I think that's probably a, a pretty safe assumption there. The, the, the extraction process to turn cannabis into a concentrate to be used in formulation of, of a product is, is usually pretty aggressive uh, and done it uh, under conditions that are not really um, uh, amenable to, to life surviving. Right. I think where you're, you're more fearful is, is the additives that go into those products. So fruit juices, or, um, I've seen some gummies out there that add like, um, actual blueberries or something to a mix. When you have something like that, then those microbial numbers could be a greater concern, um, to it, depending on how they were treated ahead of time. Uh, with it. So it just depends. But you know, you can only do so much to those like fruit juices, you can't boil fruit juices. I mean, you can, but you break down a lot of the properties in which you're trying to add that for. That's why a lot of fruit juices and stuff are pasteurized instead, right? Just yeah, short, short term heat instead of long term heat. Um, with it under very defined specific characteristics. I mean, 
there's a lot to this. Um, you know, as we go into this too, you're not only talking about where does or who's in charge of the consumer health portion, but also you can look at this, some of the other uh, issues the article brought up and besides just microbes, you know, the article also brought up concerns behind pesticide panels being run in the state and heavy metal panels being run in the state. I don't know if we want to cover that too much, but. Yeah, uh, I, I think those are actually stronger points. Uh, we, we know pretty well that most pesticides uh, and, and heavy metals are dangerous for people. Maybe we don't fully understand what the limits necessarily should be, but uh, it's, it's pretty safe to assume that if you're finding lead or arsenic or cadmium in, in your plant material, and if, if it's going to get consumed, there, there is the risk of danger there. Whereas with microbes, general, general microbes, that, that risk is not as nearly as well-defined. Right. So the point the article's bringing up is, is there's been products off of dispensary shelves that have been shown um, on the metal side where the test had limits of quantification that were above the action limit of the state, which is where they're bringing it up on heavy metals. If you have a limit of quantification on an instrument, just to give people background, that is higher than what the action limit is, you can't actually measure below or even at legally that action limit. So therefore that test really isn't valid is what the article is trying to say. Um, I'm trying to break it down a little bit more. Um, Which I agree that that test is not valid. They, or I, I suppose if, if you come up positive on that test, if you get any kind of number on that test, you know, you're beyond the action limit. Right. But then what happens between the numbers before it, right? Yeah. I've seen some of these COAs. It might be like the action limit is 0 0.2 PPM, mm -hmm. but yet the limit of quantification is 0.3. So what happens between 0.2 and 0.3? There's no ability to accurately quantify that. Basically, the instrument isn't sensitive enough. The yep. easier way of of putting it. That's Those are ones where I can agree with this article. That's concerning. Why was that pushed through? Why was that allowed to go to market? Because it's a number you can see right off the COA. Like I've scanned some of these products myself at, my, at our local dispensaries um, and, and seen this. Um, and then the pesticide panels, the other thing that they brought up, that wasn't, they didn't bring up LOQ issues or limited quantification issues there. They brought up missing pesticides. And what the, the article really didn't do is explain how that is. Um, with it. And what it is, is in March of 2023, uh, laboratories that were testing for pesticides had to go from a smaller list of about um, nine or 10 to a list of over 60 pesticides. I actually don't like the term pesticides, even though everyone calls it a pesticide panel. It's actually an organics panel um, with it. And why I like that terminology more is there are uh, certain plant growth regulators um, on that list as well, which aren't pesticides. Sure. They are organics that are used in growing, um, of that product. So again, um, that's, that's part of this, but, um, some of these products that were ran in May or June that they're referencing here, those panels were less than, um, a full panel. 
And how was that missed when there's 50 plus compounds missing? Um, because they were compliant with the regulation at the time that they were tested. No. So they were passed. The regulation the- changed in March where they had to use a full panel. Us as labs have known about this since September of 22. And then the product tested with the COA and the date of it was June or May of 23. So that's two, that's two or three months after the regulation had changed. And, and I so, agree with you. Something in January might not have that. And so the article made made the point that these products are landing on the shelves with the incomplete testing panel data. Correct. Or performance. And Somehow, this is a failure of the processor, the cultivator, the testing lab, well, or who whose fault is this? I mean, this seems like the regulatory agency is the responsible party for approving the, that product. Yeah, I mean, it, it should have been caught probably at the compliance level, I think, or regulator level in that case, I guess, is the... The concern there and as to why it wasn't, but then also, you know, anyone else looking at it come up and say something as well, right? I mean, a, a customer of a lab doesn't get a full panel of things back that they expect. I guess the question is, is should they have said something or can they say something? I, I, I don't know. I don't know how that that goes in that regard. Mind you, our stuff that's finished has all of those panels. So I'm not quite sure how that conversation would go. Is, do you think there's any responsibility that sits with the retailer accepting product that does not have the, the comprehensive COA data required? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it would be extremely hard for them to track this many SKUs. I mean, they do have to track that the COA is completed. So maybe I guess part of it could, I I, I don't know. I guess this is another one where being a lawyer might help of who is uh, legally responsible for that. Yeah. Um, Lawyer friends chime in. yeah, we we we'd love some feedback on, on this particular point. On all the points, but the the lawyers for this one, we'd love to hear. Yeah, I mean, I guess the problem is is maybe it's responsibility of a little bit of everybody, right? Why wasn't it caught somewhere in the chain? And maybe it's not just compliance or regulators. Maybe it's it's everybody in that chain as to why it, it's it's a failure. Yeah, but it, it's a tough one. And it's hard when you see these sorts of things and you have articles that come out like this as we're trying to build a community, we're trying to build a program, you know, things like this and not being caught at any level, I guess, begs argue in a, is sitting in a seat of a licensee in New York State. You know, it's it's scary to see articles come out like this because it sheds bad light for everybody. Um in the grand scheme of things, like we don't want products to go out there. That's not safe. Right. But also 
you know, as a lab and somebody who has failed products before, it's not a good feeling either. But I guess that the question here is, is where's the enforcement of, you know, asking where these tests are? I think that might be probably the biggest issue for me as a lab. I have to be objective. I can't be the enforcer. I can't be the police for compliance. I have to concentrate on getting the most appropriate results for that matrix or that product. Certainly. Yeah. I think, you know, as, as the scientist in the equation, it is absolutely your responsibility to remain objective and and not pass any kind of judgment, just generate consistent and accurate results. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably, um, probably the one quote of this article I agree with is, is this section specifically with metals and pesticide is of high concern um, when I look at things, right? You know, I, I, we didn't come on here saying that we disagree everything with the article. There are some things that at least on my side, I certainly agree with. Uh, I absolutely agree with. And I think as one of the biggest problems that we are struggling with here in New York is overcoming the deeply entrenched illicit market here. Um, the The major speaking point is that the the legal product is tested and safe. And if what we're finding is that the product is not fully tested or being released despite failing certain certain safety metrics, then what is the advantage of participating in the legal market at all? That's fair. I mean, that's especially a concern where I live. I mean, maybe we're... And for people's backgrounds, we're on opposite sides of the state from each other. So we get different views. Yeah. Here, it's not hard to find cannabis from other easily accessible sources, right? We have the Seneca Nation nearby, and you certainly can go and buy product from those individuals just as easy as you can go to one of the the local dispensaries here in Western New York. Uh, And I'm in the New York City greater area, and here... Uh, just about anywhere you can get product that has been diverted from California or Oklahoma. And um, it's, it's hard to tell. This product may have even passed compliance in those states and has now been diverted here, or it may have been the product that didn't pass there. And instead of going in the trash was diverted here. Uh, But the the lack of insight into its testing status is is a major reason to go to the licensed uh, dispensaries here in New York. So um, I I I would agree with the article to a decent degree about uh, about testing compliance, but I think that that fall falls onto OCM and the CCB to make decisions and and you know, put processes in to support those decisions. Uh, 
I think for me, though, it's the backside of that, right? It's, okay, you made a decision, but don't just tell me what the decision is. Help me by explaining to why that is. And as somebody who's in a predominant role within the community and the amount of outreach that I get to do, I'd be happy to pass those things along. But when you just make rules and you say, too bad, this is what you have to do with no clarification as to why those rules are made, I think that goes along with the education piece that would go a long way with helping the program and helping the community um, maybe swallow the pill of an already hard um, product to get into uh, to go a little bit further um, with it. And, and, and for me, we're lacking that in a lot of cases. I see rules, but I don't get a lot of explanation of what these rules are coming from or why they're coming from in this direction. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, I think another point we should touch on is uh, variability. And um, the, the variability between the certificate of analysis claim and what retest might be. Uh, and there's, there's lots of things that drive differences between that, that one number on that one certificate and a whole lot of, of product. Um, but one of the methods that other states have implemented to try and at least validate the proficiency of the testing labs are standardized commercial proficiency tests. Yeah. Um, and though there's a number of organizations these days that offer them, um, is, is this, uh, proficiency testing something that is currently required here in New York? So as of, um, 2023, it was supposed to be, and it was removed and pushed to the 24, 25 years. Um, we were told in the original regulations when we got our license that we would have to do two proficiency tests throughout the um, year. What a proficiency test, you already explained it. It's basically a third-party company that provides you material. You run your methods, whatever it might be on that material. You report that result back to the agency and they cross compare you with what they believe it should be and everybody else that was part of that test, right? That's a proficiency test. And um, the current tests that are out there, depending on which ones have a leeway of anywhere from 30 to 40% plus or minus, uh, whatever the assigned value is or whatever they believe that it should have been. So it is pretty broad, um, but it still gives you a gauge as to how close you might be to things. Um, we did participate in one recently uh, at Biotrax anyways, um, with some of the methods that we do. Were we required to by the state? No, um, that requirement won't start until um, spring of 24. Um, but it is certainly something that needs to be. And as you mentioned, though, there are multiple providers out there. Um, you know, a lot of those providers share similar um, sources for their materials. So there really is more of a limit to those than it might seem. Um, because there's, there's agencies that 
sell the tests from multiple gatherings to do these. Um, but really, I think the, the the big piece here is is it does need to be. But also with this too, on the regulation or state side of things, beyond just PT testings with it, we really could, in my opinion, utilize more reference lab work from the state to check certain things. Um, maybe a value is over a certain number, so the state checks it. Or it's really hard to get this number, but somebody's claiming it this. Let's check that number. Um, you know, they kind of hinted at it, but didn't go into it as much as some. One thing would be potency levels, right? If there's flower product over a certain number, let's say 20% or 22% or whatever the magic numbers assign, have the state or a, a agency separate double check those numbers to make sure that they're accurate. You could do the same thing with microbes or anything else um, that are there. Do, does the law or the regulation package as it exists currently provide for a secret stopper program um, where, it, where the state would send somebody to purchase some product and then test it at the state reference lab? So for from my understanding, there is no laws or regulations to that, but a reference lab was supposed to be built in congruence to this. One could argue that that reference lab could also be where they give out PT tests. We know that this happens by the state in the state ELAP system. The state ELAP system use, utilizes in-house New York State tests that they provide the laboratories with and compare all the laboratories for um, water together for that. And that's prepared by New York State and given out by New York State. So they know the standards in which they're given out and expect these labs to be to. So why don't we see something on this end um, as well? But right now, there's not necessarily a quote-unquote sh secret shoppers program. However, um, processors or cultivators, for for however many samples they give a laboratory, they're also supposed to be retaining those within that lot of product so that if there is a requirement by the state um, for a retest of something, they could the state could either have it sent to another licensed lab or they could require it to be sent to uh, Wadsworth, which is the state lab, um, to it. Uh, we don't retain that product much lo too long after testing, but licensees that are selling products are required to retain a subset for the purpose of testing or retesting. So how does that work with the sampling entity? A sampling entity would come in, take the samples, and provide a portion of those samples back to the cultivator or processor to store, or? Nope. The sampling entity brings the material that comes to the lab. So they're really just a transport agency. They're not, or, or are they? Oh, no, they're sampling. So let's say... Let's say somebody goes and makes uh, 5,000 units of gummies and there's 10 gummies in a bag, mm -hmm. 100 mil, you know, 10 milligrams a piece, 100 milligrams for the bag yep. that you might buy. Um, that processor might already have everything built. So they have, you know, totes of 5,000 bags of gummies, 10 mm -hmm. units. So it was really 50,000 gummies, but the way they classify them is by unit. So it's the actual purchasable bag of gummies itself. So it'd be 5,000 they would need to supply 20 of those 5,000 bags to the lab. And it, the sampler's job is to go there, randomly generate numbers, and choose bags across that 5,000 
that would represent everything across that sample, uh, across that lot of material um, for it. Their job is not to, to then create a subset that they would keep. That would be the responsibility of the processor in this case, because it's a gummy, so it would be, it'd have to be done by a processor. Yeah. Um, and then the sampler, though, then brings those extras to, to be here. Okay. I... Does that make sense? Yeah. I I think understanding what sampling and subsampling looks like is is part of understanding how this process works with testing. Yep. And and the samplers when they do go to these facilities, they are videotaping themselves as doing the process, so it's not like they can just go there. They do have to be, have video evidence that they did sample appropriately flower is a little bit different flower can come out of totes the subset of samples can be um weighed off and put into bags right there for individuals brought to the lab tested and then once the coa comes out for flower products the licensee would have uh one week to complete the packaging of that product or have to be packaged within that fully packaged within that week so it is a little bit different in those um, pieces. Part of the reason for this is, is because aspergillus is so rampant as, of a problem in New York state. It's the number one fail in New York state. Mm -hmm. Um, that it is a way for these cultivators, especially to not lose all of their packaging because they had a set of, of a, a lot fail. And then now they have to trash all of those mylar bags. They would only lose the ones that were sent to the lab. Yeah. They still do have to touch the bags or jars or however you're packaging it before it comes to the lab. That's something that a lot of people have a misunderstanding of. Um, and they want to just sometimes send us just a bag of flour, but it does for compliance, final compliance packaging tests. It doesn't work like that. It has to incorporate the packaging. But it doesn't have to necessarily have gone through the scale production packaging process. Not until the, not for flour until the, test cam could it have been yes if if you went and packaged all your flour now you had a sampler come out absolutely you could still do it that way really what it is it's the state's trying to give a reprieve that if you have a failed test you haven't wasted all of that packaging and labeling which seems like at bare minimum is a sustainability concern oh absolutely anytime that we create unnecessary waste especially for product that's not even going to market absolutely yeah yeah so, yeah, I mean, and, 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 you know, going a little bit more into the sustainability thing, you know, we talk about sustainability, but, you know, microbes are a big part of sustainability in agricultural settings with this. You know, we have a whole list of pesticides that aren't legal in New York State to use, or if they are legal to use, you have to be the final product, so it has to be below a certain limit um, there. One of the ways to get around using a lot of synthetic pesticides is to use microorganisms to fight off, um, you know, issues, um, whether it be powdery mildew, et cetera, botrytis, so on and so forth, right? Uh, one yeah. of the, and there's a lot of products out there, you know, there's some that you're literally spraying Bacillus subtilis onto plants. Now, will the Bacillus subtilis hurt you? No, but it's still a concern. And it's still going to spike in aerobic plate count number or bacteria number. Yeah, right. Uh, even even 
different species, right? We, we know, let's go back to talking about Aspergillus. Well, there's what the, the four different types of Aspergillus that are highly pathogenic. And then there's thousands of other species of Aspergillus. Yeah, and and that's why often PCR techniques are used to target the four species. So it's Flavus, Fumigatus, Niger, and Terius in New York State. Um, that's actually more industry bound, not not just New York State. But yeah, there's not thousands. There's about two hundred known species in the United States of Aspergillus. Okay. Or there's more that that aren't um, identified um, yeah. with it, and most of them, you're right, don't have a health concern or you know might be utilized as a spoilage organism. Um, you also have the concern that some of those species, and I think this is misconstrued too, is everyone thinks that, oh, I don't have aspergillus. There's no way I'm going to have mycotoxin issues <laughs> in their product. And that's actually accurately false. One of those other 200 species we were talking about literally is named aspergillus okonatus because it creates okotoxin. The problem is it's not known as a direct human pathogen in its living form, even though the the metabolic byproduct, the mycotoxin, can cause um, concern. Penicillium, too. Penicillium is well known to create. There are certain species that can create ochratoxins as well. And are, are the regulations requiring direct testing of any of these mycotoxins? Yeah. So we do have to test for um, four variants of um, aflatoxin and ochratoxin, um, and it has a very strict um, 20 parts per billion limit. It's pretty low. On it, yeah, it's very low. Um, the aflatoxins are all grouped together as one, too, so it doesn't take them individually. Uh, it's total aflatoxin, mm -hmm. and then you have ochratoxin on top of that. So there are the two major ones. These are known to build up in our system, build up in our fatty tissues, livers, and things and can be carcinogenic, which is why they are regulated. That's that's good to know. Yeah. And these are separate from, from shigatoxin, which is a much more acute poison. It can be, yeah. And um, with shigatoxin, you know, the we test, we don't test directly for that toxin, unlike the mycotoxins, but we do test for um, the big baddies that tend to create that, which is groups of E. coli species. Yeah. We can get actually into other microbial species that, um, quote, <laughs> create those too. But again, at some point, and I think everyone needs to understand this is being a regulator is not easy. No, definitely um, not. If we literally took into concern every possible organism that could possibly even hurt somebody you wouldn't have an industry. You wouldn't have any industry, right? Food, food would be problems, problematic too. Correct. Yeah, we would be filled with preservatives and processing because you'd never be able to eat a raw food with it. And that also brings in, because just because we brought asp up aspergillus, you know, aspergillosis, the disease of aspergillus, that's a respiratory disease. But yet we're still regulating this in the sense of why are we why are we testing for aspergillus on like a gummy or a beverage? Yeah. I'm not breathing those in, right? I'm consuming those. It's not a GI disease. I'm, you know, you my morning apple, I probably ate aspergillus. I, I, I just I think there's a very, 
very strong likelihood of that. Yeah, if not the organism itself, the spore of the organism. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's <laughs> you know it, it, it's one of those. It's really tough because you have to pick and choose and decide those sorts of things. You know, you can make the same argument. It's a plant material. Why aren't we testing for Staph aureus? Staph aureus is well known to cause diseases. It can cause blood septus infections. It can cause skin disorders. It can cause all kinds of things. Not to mention it creates a toxin too. Yeah. But at the, you know, going all the way back to the beginning of swabbing your hands, Staph lives on everybody's skin, doesn't it? Staph aureus is, depending on what textbook you read, is on about 20 to 40% of the population. That number varies depending on what micro book you pick up. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, we all have Steph Epidermidus on us. It's literally named after being on our yeah. nervous. <laughs> <laughs> um, that doesn't create the same toxin issues that, that Staph aureus does. But yeah, we all have or probably have had Staph aureus at some point within our microbiome at some point in time of our life, what, whether you've gotten an infection or not, because it does tend to be an opportunistic pathogen. Uh, and of course, that means immunocompromised individuals are at higher risk. Of course. I mean, I mean they're, they're at higher risk of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, compared to. And that goes back to what I think we are trying to say with a lot of this is I'm hoping that a lot of this conversation, we start seeing a morph between the adult use program and the medical program, right? Yeah, I feel very strongly about that. I, I think that we have done a huge disservice to the medical program as the adult use program has rolled out. Um, there have been very limited adjustments and a lot of the perspective, not just in New York, but in most states when an adult use program comes out, is why would anybody be in the medical program anymore? It's legal now, but there there are distinct differences, uh, not the least of which is immunocompromised individuals rely on a medical program with stricter health and safety testing requirements and limits to ensure that they are getting a product that that will not harm them. Right. Or if you're not immunocompromised and you're just looking for that type of product instead to deal with whatever ailment you might be in a medical program for, right? I mean, you you could choose to shop in an adult use store, but maybe you just want to take those extra steps, those extra precautions. I Yeah. I, I think my feeling is that many of the standard tests that are in most adult use programs are not really adult use indicators and they're actually uh, medical quality indicators. Um, and that a lot of the testing burden could be lifted from the adult use program if the medical programs were paid a little bit more attention and regulated with more intention. Sure. Yeah. You could regulate that with more intention, but you could also take away some of that on the adult use side. Like I said, it's, and, and that would also help with sustainability aspects of things. 
um, looking at the testing program with adult use could also help cultivators and processors save money in this time of transition um, between what a lot of these cultivators were, were hemp farmers that put a lot into hemp, don't have the funds anymore, and they're trying to create use this market to get a lot of their um, loss back, try to reestablish their life and their businesses. And as you add, I, I think individuals need to understand as you add analytes or you test more, that doesn't bring costs down. That only brings costs up. So it's, again, it's balancing what that is from what the medical program needs with more testing to adult use with possibly less testing and how we can also benefit from balancing safety with quality and with price. Uh, and sustainability, right? And because sustainability. not only does does more testing increase costs, it increases the use of consumables, of solvents, of of all sorts of laboratory materials, Energy. which, which uh, have their their own carbon footprint and and potentially additional environmental impacts. Right, absolutely. I mean, we we could go down a rabbit hole of talking about all the possibilities. You know, you even mentioned earlier, like it costs energy to do irradiation. Right, that's not sustainable. Yep. <laughs> that's not sustainability. So, I mean, yeah, I, there, there's a lot to this piece. I do wish, I think, within this article, they had interviewed some individuals within the state, too, that's living the process itself. I feel like that's missing here. Um, as part of it, everyone that was within the article is not within the state, which is concerning, too, um, for it. But, you know, overall, I... I, I think there's just there's good things about the article and there's bad things about the article and we need to find ways of balancing the the two. Uh, agreed. And I think uh, at minimum, the existence of the article has spurred this conversation and that is, is a good thing. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and I hope that uh, our conversation here brings some has brought some points to light for consideration by, you know, players in the industry, by, by licensees in New York, by uh, the OCM and the CCB as well. Yeah, uh, exactly. Everybody is part of this and everybody needs to be thinking about this. And I think for this matter too is, um, I'd be happy to continue this conversation beyond this. You know, if you are somebody who found this interesting, wanted to go into some of these points more because we have limited time, right? Feel free to reach out to me. It's William at biotracks.net. Um, I'm willing to discuss or, or move on any of these topics. Yeah. I'll th thank you for that bill. And uh, we'll, we'll make sure to include that in the show notes we will try and include uh, some of these references that we've made in the show notes as well. Um, uh, if if anybody has any uh, any comments they'd like to direct my way as well, I can be reached at evan at scientificcell.com. And uh, I, this this conversation needs to and will continue. So. Yeah. It's far from over, right? It's far from over. It's not even over on our end, right? We're going to still be working on this and talking about this. 
and I think the the other thing that everybody should remember is that, um, like most things, this is a work in progress, and bringing up the the points of failure are is the opportunity to do better, and we we are going to continue to strive for continuous improvement. I mean, that's that's us as scientists as a whole, right? Yeah, for sure. So. For sure. Engineering in quality and improving from there. Yep, exactly. So I I 100% agree with you, and I look forward to continuing the conversation, not amongst just us, but the community as a whole. And, and like we said, feel free to reach out to us and bring us into those conversations as you have them too. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Bill. Uh, this has been interesting and uh i i look forward to to the next round yeah and i appreciate you having me on it yeah have a great day you too